Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Where Is Your Worship? by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we thank you for your word. We hold your word in the esteem this morning that we should. It is a privilege, Lord, for you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ and in the record of your written word. Lord, my prayer this morning is that nobody would see me, but everybody would see Jesus. And as we open your word, I pray for spiritual eyes and for Jesus to be unveiled ever increasingly before us in your wonderful and most glorious name. Amen. Amen. Revelations chapter 13 would have to be the most misunderstood chapter, I think, in all of the Bible. Um, But I believe it also has a wonderful, beautiful message for us in the church today. Before we go any further, uh, for those that are aware of the book of Revelation, uh, before we go any further this morning, I'm going to help you out. Uh, If you're sitting here waiting to find out who the Antichrist is, uh, the word Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation, just as an FYI. If you're sitting here, uh, let me help you out a little bit. Bill Gates is not one of the beasts. Uh, Let me help you out a little bit further. The mark of the beast is not a vaccine. And uh, let's be absolutely clear this morning. uh, If you have received the vaccine, you're not practicing sorcery. You're welcome. That was for free this morning. But let's move in and unpack perhaps what the message may be for us today. Isn't it amazing how uh, there can be so much speculation and the reason I make it, I was making a bit of fun, but the reason I make fun is uh, often people stay away from the book of Revelation because they think it's a scary book. Nobody could possibly understand it. It's got a beautiful message for us today. Uh, why do I appreciate the book of Revelation so much? Anybody ever watched that movie, The Green Zone, with Matt Damon in uh, 2010? They released a movie called The Green Zone. Uh, interestingly enough, it's a movie about a, a safe zone. It was a zone in Baghdad that, although there was enormous hostility outside of the perimeters, and, and although there was battles raging all around, uh, The Green Zone represented a safe zone where there was no conflict, no apparent conflict, no apparent hostility, uh, and the coalition forces could kind of gather their uh, bases there. And the sad truth is that as we move further and further uh, into our Christianity today, what we find is that we have invented, yes, that's right, we have invented a green zone that uh, particularly in the West, I find that we have constructed for ourselves this make-believe zone where everything's okay and uh, there's no hostility and there's no battle and and that's for everybody else fighting outside the parameters. That's what I love about the book of Revelation. It tears those walls down and lets us know that every single one of us are in the heat of a battle. You are in the heat of a battle right now and I want to talk about what the battle is all about today. Uh, I want to tell you largely what the book of Revelation is about today. And there is one thing on this planet right now that every single person is doing. Some people don't realise they are doing it. Some people don't want to be doing it. And some people are adamantly doing it. And that is worshipping. Believe it or not, every person on planet Earth right now is worshipping something or somebody. I spent six and a half years driving nights in taxis and I realised something. All of the people that got in, I realised that they are all worshipping something. 
I also realised that many people that got into my taxi and would obliterate themselves weekend after weekend, uh, dr- drugs and alcohol weren't their problem. Uh, as Russell Brand says, uh, he says, drugs and alcohol are not my problem, reality is my problem. They were always trying to escape reality, but people are worshipping. I had, I had high-rolling businessmen in, in my taxi. I had celebrities in my taxi, people that I didn't even know were a celebrity. <laughs> when you're a self-confessed celebrity, there's a problem. But uh, I had celebrities, and the same thing for every one of them, they were worshipping. And uh, there is a battle that is raged, a cosmic battle for your worship. That is the reason the enemy is no longer in heaven because he wanted what is rightfully God's. He wanted to exalt himself. He wanted the worship. Nothing's changed. He still wants your worship, except he has to use deceptive methods to be able to get hold of it. He has to use subtle lies. He has to use deception. He has to use uh, compromise uh, to kind of uh, sweep us away and divert our worship. I, I want to help you this morning. If, if, if your idea of worship is Hillsong and Chris Tomlin, and, and, and sometimes, particularly in the charismatic movement, we sum up worship as the last three songs we sing on a Sunday, the first two are praise, and then we go into worship as if there was a difference, right? But at the end of the day, what we read in Scripture, is that guys like Abraham worshipped. That's the place we see it first mentioned. We see that Job worshipped. And the funny thing was that Chris Tomlin and Hillsong weren't there. And nobody was singing. I worship and I do it sometimes without singing. Praise God. Everybody said praise God. Because worship is a posture of life. And we sometimes overcomplicate worship and we sometimes over-mystify worship. But let me help you this morning. Worship is, another word for worship is attention. Worship is whatever you adamantly, diligently give your attention to. And every time you diligently take your attention of something else or somebody else and give it to God, you're worshipping him. The beautiful truth is, You don't have to be in church to worship God. You could be an electrician screwing wires together and shorting things out. (laughs) But thinking and casting your attention on God, A.W. Tozer, he calls it a thousand thought prayers a day where we just turn our attention back to God. Uh, We... How many time? How much time do we honestly spend in the car? Like in Queensland, it's like ten times the amount I used to in Tasmania because of the traffic. But how often do we just turn the radio off and go? Whilst I'm stuck in traffic, I'll stop lobbing the bird and stop beeping the horn, and just focus on God. You're worshiping. The enemy wants our worship. The, the enemy will use compromise. The enemy will use persecution. Uh, uh, Peter in his epistle, the first epistle, he writes to suffering Christians that are spread abroad. And what Peter writes in chapter 3 of his first epistle, he says, sanctify the Lord or honour the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts as holy. But that comes on the back of a chapter that says you are giving all of your attention to these guys that keep coming to persecute you. All your attention is on what will they do next and what's the persecution going to look like and how could they... And he says you're giving God's place to them. And what I love about the book of Revelation is it highlights how important your worship is. 
Today, as we work our way through chapter 13, we're going to ask the same questions we have asked in the book of Revelation all the way through. We don't have to be, we don't have to be frightened of this book. No one's going to have bad dreams if you read it or anything like that. It's a beautiful truth. But what we do see, a uh, couple of things real quick. What we do see is it's filled with symbolism and language uh, that is uh, apocalyptic. It's revelatory. It, 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 its design is to hook us. God uses parables. God uses illustrations. God uses pictures and figures to hook us on the inside. And, and so Revelation is filled with that. But one thing I hear a lot that I want to kind of make sure that we don't accept this morning is many people say, well, the book of Revelation is all on its own. It's not like any other book in the Bible. It uses all this different language. So we have to interpret the book of Revelation differently, which is usually I want to interpret it however I see fit. When in fact, what we do find and what we will find today is that it is saturated. The book of Revelation is saturated in Old Testament language. What we find written in chapter 13, there is nothing new under the sun. We find this language elsewhere and it helps us to understand what is going on in the book of Revelation. As I said last week, wherever you arrive on timelines of events is not what I'm overly concerned about this morning, what I am concerned about is that we grab the thrust of the message. As we work our way through, we will see that the most important thing in this chapter is worship and where it's going. And I want to challenge everybody today, where is your worship? Where is your worship? And it's all—it's easy for us to just say, yeah, I worship God, but, but how often do we spend focused in fear and anxiety looking at the news reports every night, wondering whether World War III is going to break out, wondering if there's going to be another strain of COVID and all these things. At the end of the day, where is all of our attention? So let us work our way through and, and I'll make some observations and you can do with those as you please as we make our way through and try to understand the message of Revelations 13. Uh, 13 verse 1, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And this is your first morning this morning. You're probably thinking these guys, think they, they believe in beasts and dragons? Kind of. Stay with us for a moment, please. Uh, on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Uh, a couple of things that we do notice from Scripture as we begin to work our way through. Uh, first thing I do when I'm pulling these apart is I ask myself, have we seen this language anywhere else in Scripture? Why? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. Or have we seen this anywhere else that may be able to help us to understand what's going on? And we have. In Daniel chapter 7, he's given a vision of four beasts that rise up out of the sea. And how did Daniel understand what those four beasts were? Well, the four beasts that rose up out of the sea, he was told that they were and are four kingdoms. So again, we see that the book of Revelation is saturated, saturated in Old Testament language. In fact, I will go as far as to say that the the greater understanding we have of the book of Daniel... And the book of Exodus, the greater understanding we will all have of the book of Revelation. 
that's a plug for the Exodus series coming up a little bit later in the year. For those that's free plug Friday today, we're going to plug that one. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, <clears throat> ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Here, as we're working our way through, uh, we come down to, and the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to the beast. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now we get to what it's all about. And they worshipped the dragon. It's all about worship. It's all about where people's worship is, for he had given his authority to the beast. And how are we to understand this? And I know there are people sitting in the room today that are going to say, well, that's a figure that's going to rise later uh, on and all that sort of stuff. Whatever, that may be the case, but can I just make some observations uh, as we work our way through this? And you can do with those observations what you please this morning. Here's what I uh, observed from the history, the context of what was happening immediately when this book was written. At the time that John was writing this book, uh, there was a very, very wicked and evil empire called the Roman Empire. And uh, what I will make the claim today that the beast is not an individual at all, but in fact it represents the Roman Empire. Uh, I'd also make the claim that the ten heads we see on the beast are the ten Caesars that are throughout the history of the Roman Empire. You do with those as you please. Uh, uh, why do I come to such conclusions? Well, when we see imagery like uh, uh, blasphemous names on its heads is a reference to the claim of every Caesar, blasphemous names on its heads, every Caesar's claim to divinity. This is going to be important as we work our way through. Uh, in the first century, which we learnt from the seven churches when we worked our way through them, was uh, those seven cities had a temple set up, an imperial temple, where you had to, had to pay homage to Caesar. A little bit of a disclaimer before we go any further, before everybody's wondering where this is all going to go. Uh, I'm going to make the claim that we've got beasts alive today. And I'm also going to make the claim that we've seen beasts throughout the history of the church and the history of the Old Testament. But the Roman Empire in this day made a claim to divinity. That was, that's blasphemous. Any Blaspheming God is doing anything or saying anything that puts yourself in his place or puts anybody else in his place. That's blaspheming. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion. Every one of those beasts were used as symbols amidst the Roman Empire to signify power and strength. Just observations I'm making. And to it the dragon gave his power. I will make the claim that the beasts that we have seen, the beasts of the Old Testament that are mentioned in Daniel, the beasts that we're now talking about and the beasts that we have seen are physical representations on earth of an evil influence behind them. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. What possibly could that mean? But its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast. What could that possibly mean? 
Although I'm happy for people to point out when I'm wrong, because my wife is, it's her spiritual gift. Uh, she's not here, so I'm getting away with this this morning. Uh, for those that are wondering where my family is, I don't live on my own. Uh, my family's back in Tasmania. Convicts have to go back regularly for parole hearings. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm just hoping they don't listen to the video. <coughs> Otherwise, I might be back in, yeah. Uh, what, I, what I did, one thing I did uh, notice from history, which was very interesting, uh, Many people make the mistake that it's the beast that suffers the mortal wound, but that's not the case. One of the heads suffers a mortal wound, the beast keeps on living, which is interesting. Uh, one of the heads that would have been alive at the time when uh, John is writing the book of Revelation was a guy by the name of Nero. We're going to cover him off a little bit in a moment as we're talking about observations, but Nero, to put it politely, was cray-cray. He was a dead-set despot, uh, but he... Uh, he made it his life commitment to persecute the church and actually eradicate the church. Uh, what we know, a brief history of uh, Caesar Nero uh, at that time was that Caesar Nero, uh, after blaming the church for setting fire to Rome, after persecuting the church, uh, gets to the point where the empire wants to lynch him. They want to get rid of him. Civil war breaks out in Rome and in 66 AD, Caesar Nero kills himself. What we know that happens immediately after that, after his death, is immediately after that, the beast or the empire, uh, seems as though all historians are amazed. When they look back at history, they are amazed that the Roman Empire survived this because in the space of 12 months, uh, the Roman Empire has three consecutive uh, emperors that are all quickly wiped out. Uh, uh, Being an emperor in Rome, by the way, was like being the bikey boss. Everybody wants your head. That's the kind of job. Everybody, <laughs> you trust nobody in that kind of job uh, for that reason. Until Vespasian comes in. And Vespasian steadies the empire for, for an extended period of time. And history, historians marvel that the empire was able to carry on after everything that happened under Caesar Nero. For those that were with us last week, uh, here's some other observations I made. Uh, last week we were introduced to 42 months and 1260 days. Some interesting facts I found from history. Uh, in, in 64 AD, Caesar Nero, uh, declares war on the church. Uh, Caesar Nero declares war on the church and he is bent on destroying the church and you can read about some of those persecutions. They were horrible. They are not G-rated. They are somewhat R-rated. So we won't go into the depths of them this morning. Uh, but, what we do know is that although uh, Nero commits suicide, Vespasian picks up that persecution uh, and that whole persecution against the church lasts a period of 42 months, exactly. Another interesting fact was that uh, uh, just before his death in 66 AD, uh, Caesar Nero initiates an attack on Jerusalem, which we know culminates in 70 AD with the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple. In 70 AD, uh, from the day that uh, Nero uh, initiates an attack on Jerusalem to the day that Vespasian carries it out, 1260 days to the day. Just some interesting facts that I kind of found as I was researching the context. You might be sitting here this morning going, why on earth is 42 months and 1260 days important? Let's keep reading. Verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight 
against it. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints. Authority for 42 months, make war on the saints. Just some interesting notes. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints. Uh, just uh, something that's enormously important, particularly when you're reading the book of Daniel. Uh, the reference of saints is only New Testament Christians. The, the Old Testament people of God were never called saints. It's not that they weren't saints. It's just that's not what they were called. Uh, the New Testament people of God are called saints, just as an interesting Reference And to conquer them, an authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. If you read the history of the Roman Empire, you will find that describes the Roman Empire of the first century almost to a T. Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. This is what it's about. Whatever you believe about timelines concerning the book of Revelation this morning, However you may be sitting in your seat this morning disagreeing with everything that I say, all of that's fine this morning, but please leave here with this one thing. The most important thing about you this morning, the most important message from this chapter is, where is your worship? I love this verse. I love the truth that it unpacks. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everybody whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Wow. That's a tough verse. That's a tough verse. Because what that verse says is, Before God created the earth, Robin Alderton's name was written in his book. We marvel at that too, Robin, but (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) Before the foundation of the world, somebody, the Lamb, wrote Russell McKinnon in his book of life. And time, if I can help you for a moment, time is something that's imposed on us. If you are a created being, time is imposed on you. It's not imposed on God. C.S. Lewis described it like this. He says, take a piece of paper and extend it across eternity. No beginning, no end. He says, then draw a line in the middle of that piece of paper that has a beginning and an end. He says, that's our time. And it all exists inside of God. And what this verse does not say, this verse isn't saying that God, before he created the world, decided that he'd save this person and reject that person. That's not what this verse says at all. What this verse gloriously unpacks and reveals is that God is bigger than time and he sees everything all at once. And so therefore he knows who will respond. And what I love about last week is uh, this verse beautifully unpacks. Would you believe that they put Basil Johnson's name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Kale eater. 
in the Lamb's book of life. And last week we read about what was going on when Jesus came to earth. This is what I love about the story of the gospel, is that my name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and Jesus stepped onto this planet and he said, I'm going to get them. I've got all their names here and I'm going to get them. But a couple of quick notes on the Lamb's book of life. You did nothing to deserve to get written into it. It's his pen, his ink. You did nothing to deserve it. There's no abhorrent thing you can do that God would say, I don't want you anymore and take your name out. But you can walk away. Jesus, talking to the church at Sardis in chapter 3, verse 5 of Revelation says, to him who conquers, I will not and nobody will not blot his name out of my book. That's enormously good news this morning. Whatever your theology of heaven, all of our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I've had my name in a lot of people's books, but that's the one I really like. (laughs) Men with blue hats and... It's a story for another day, Russell. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he will be slain. I love this. This is what it's all about. Here is the call. The call to the church is this, for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And here's why I don't think the beast is one particular figure in the future, because there's two of them. And the second beast that we find in Revelations chapter 13, uh, let's begin as we work our way through. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke, spoke. How do you discern this beast? It speaks like the dragon. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Worship. The first beast. I'll make some observations about that one in a moment. Whose mortal wound was healed. Interesting. Verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. Uh, Anybody recall two prophets in the Old Testament, one that performed great signs and one that called fire down from heaven? A little bit more about that in a moment. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, it is allowed to work. In the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that it was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Uh, How are we to understand the second beast? Let me try and help you this morning understand uh, the language. What we do know about the second beast is this. In chapter 16, in chapter 19, and in chapter 20, the second beast is referenced as the false prophet. What we're beginning to get a picture of here is we have a dragon, we have an earthly beast, and a false prophet. We have... uh, The enemy is all about counterfeit. The enemy is all about doing whatever he has to do to steal our worship, to steal our attention, to steal us away from God, even if he has to, in a sense, set up a counterfeit trilogy, a trinity, excuse me. 
Uh, what do we know about the prophet? What we do know uh, is that a true prophet proclaims God's message and directs attention and worship towards the one true God. The reference here to performing great signs, Moses, the reference to calling down fire, those guys were true prophets. We need more Moseses today. We need more Elijahs today. We need more men and women of God that are going to come down off the mountain and are going to draw a line in the sand before the people of God and say, God on this side, the world on this side. That's what we need. It's too much of a green zone in the middle. That's exactly what Moses did when he came off Mount Sinai and he broke the tablets after God had spent all that time chiseling into them, right? After he broke the tablets, what he does to the people that are worshipping the calf is he draws a line in the sand and says, all right, all of you that are on God's side over here. And the rest are judged. And what does uh, Elijah do in 1 Kings chapter 17? He doesn't ask for all the non-believers to come to Mount Carmel. He says, go and get Israel and bring them to the mountain. And they're all assembled at the mountain. And what does he say to the people in 1 Kings chapter 17? He says, uh, no longer limp between two opinions. And in the Hebrew, the context is of, of dancing with many partners. Uh, stop dancing with all the gods of the world. If God is the true God, then worship him. But if Baal is the true God, then worship him. And we know what happens. Fire comes down from heaven, licks up the water even. We don't need an altar where we keep rearranging the stones and dressing up the timber. We need God to call fire down from heaven and consume each and every one of us. The enemy wants your worship. And he is not silly enough to think that he can set up temples where people are going to go and adamantly worship him so he'll steal it off you. There are parents in this room whose kids have been seduced by the world and and they're off claiming to have a belief in God. What we do know about the second beast is that it represents a couple of things that I want to observe from history. And I want to introduce you to one of the most haunting scriptures I've found in the New Testament when we do. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. What we know about the apostate, unbelieving Jewish nation at the time that Rome was there was that they had all of the authority they had was in the presence of Rome. Uh, They operated with authority. Uh, Why did they take Jesus to Pilate to be crucified? Because they had their own law, they had their own consequences, but they didn't have the authority to crucify anybody. What does Pilate initially say? You go and deal with him yourself. But surely, Pastor, you're making a far stretch when it gets to the next verse. Surely you're stretching, thinking that this is the Pharisees and the religiosity of the day. Surely you're performing a great stretch. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now you're really stretching, Pastor. Can't possibly be those guys. John chapter 19, Pilate walks Jesus out before the whole of the Israelite crowd and says, here is your king. And the high priest, Lord have mercy, the high priest stands up and says, we have no king but Caesar. That sounds like, a lot like. Do you know the enemy's happy for you to come here every Sunday? 
He's happy for you to come in and out as long as you're not any different on Monday. As long as you go to work and you don't live and shine the light of Christ, as long as you don't proclaim the gospel message, you know, you turn up to, you know, I'll plug into church once or twice a month, that's all right, I'll, I'll tack Jesus onto the back end of my life, devil's going to leave you alone. Enemy will leave you alone. You're no threat to him. The minute you make a conscious decision that I'm going to live and shine my light for Christ, you're a threat. And this is what I love about the... I, I, want, I want the per, person you get coffee off in the morning, I want them to be in danger. In danger of, of seeing the love of Christ in you. I want, I want our kids who have been stolen and lured away, I want the enemy to start sweating bullets. Why? Because mum and dad are on their knees in the prayer closets. Anybody here heard of a guy called Michael Yusuf? God bless Michael Yusuf. Uh, Thank you, Levi, for pointing me to his book, Saving Christianity. What a great book. Uh, Long story short, Michael Yusuf comes all the way from Egypt to America and begins preaching. Made a commitment, I'm going to preach the word of God and that's it. God bless Michael Yusuf. Uh, What happens is that his contemporaries, his colleagues, come to him and say, listen, um, you might want to tone it down a bit or nobody's going to come. He said, I'm going to preach the word of God and whoever wants to come can come. And the rest is history. It's standing room only at the Church of Apostles. I have great hope. This is not a beating up the church. I have great hope for the church. Why? Because I believe that the people of God are hungry for God. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that the people of God are hungry for God and they want more of God. I actually believe the deficiency isn't in the people. They just haven't been fed. Get yourself in trouble in certain circles with that one, Liz. Let's close with two things I'm sure you're wondering. First thing, I'm actually going to jump to the end and give you a qualifier today. Uh, For those that are sitting here wondering, is the pastor going to address the whole 666 thing? I am. I'm going to do it now and then I'm going to come back to the mark because people may be sitting here going, what's going on with the mark? But the mark's really important for how we're going to finish. Verse 18 at the end says, this calls for wisdom. We'll get back to that. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. And and, uh, I'm... I'm probably going to tell you where I land, but I'm going to be really honest with you this morning. And I'm going to tell you that I can't definitively tell you what that means. I'm going to tell you why. I could make a strong case right now that 666 equals Caesar Nero. But there's problems with that. There's a system of communication, which is called the Hebrew-Jewish Gematria. It's kind of a graffiti kind of thing. Uh, And so many people have said, well, 666 uh, numbers have uh, power and numerical value and they add up to words and letters in the alphabet. And if we do all of that, then it adds up to Caesar Nero, but it actually doesn't. It adds up to Nero Caesar. You have to pronounce it that way. The other thing is it's Hebrew. Uh, I'm just being honest and transparent this morning. The other thing is it's actually Hebrew. uh, Gematria is Hebrew graffiti, and they had a different way of spelling Caesar. 
What I'm trying to tell you is that that 666, I could actually line that up with about 100 people through history. I could make a strong case right now that that number 666 equals about 100 people down through history. I could line it up to Hitler right now. I could make a case for you right now how that lines up with Hitler. What I'm trying to say to you is, you know how you've got those locks where heaps of keys fit and open the lock? That's what 666 is like. It's kind of like, yeah, it could be Caesar Nero, but it could be about 100 people down through history. I actually don't think it's an individual. I actually think uh, six is one number less than seven. That's free this morning for the mathematicians. That's free information this morning. I think, I think this represents complete incompleteness. How do I come to that conclusion? I come to that conclusion because what I see here is the enemy forming his own completely incomplete trinity. The dragon, the beast of the earth, false prophet. I can't categorically tell you what that number represents. And although it fits my model of the Empire of Rome, claiming it to be Caesar Nero, uh, it's shallow for best. So I need to be clear. The wisdom that we need, and we all need wisdom, I believe, is to be able to see through the lies and the deception of the enemy. I noticed with interest about the mark, because many people, I, I want to help you this morning, uh, this pastor doesn't believe the mark is actually a physical anything. If you're waiting for a physical barcode or something like that, I actually think the enemy's not that silly to make it that brazen, that there we go. I, I, do with that what you will. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I actually noticed some stuff about the mark. Do we see anything like this in Scripture anywhere else? Do we, do, and, and how can we best understand what's going on? Well, let's read uh, the language that surrounds us and surrounds the mark. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, uh, in first century Rome, if you did not pay homage to Caesar, and that could be proven, you could be killed for that. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked. The most important thing about the mark is not what it is, but where it is. might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes both small and great, both rich and poor, free and slave, everybody, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, what we find is uh, that the, uh, the Israelites and the, the, the people of God in the Old Testament were told to place the Torah on their foreheads. And what we do find in Old Testament language is this, that they were told to, to, to place the Torah over their foreheads and that the hand speaks about the outworking. Uh, the, 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 the reference to uh, having it on our foreheads is not literal, it's figurative, and it's, uh, it's meant to encompass ideologies that govern us. That was what it meant in the Old Testament. You are governed by the Torah. By the time you reach first century uh, Pharisees, they used to have things on their foreheads called phylacteries. I'm not sure if anybody's aware of what a phylactery was. But a phylactery was uh, a record of a tiny, tiny little scroll uh, of all the Torah that you had committed to memory. 
There were Pharisees in the first century that could recite word for word the first five books of the Bible. Too much time in their hands, maybe. But uh, the more that you knew, the greater the size of the phylactery. And the marking of the hand represents the practical outworking of what it is of our commitments and our convictions. I believe the enemy (coughs) deliberately decides to mark us and change how we perceive the world, how we perceive uh, things around us, and I believe he does that very subtly. I believe that the enemy, one of the ploys of the enemy is to change our ideologies ever so subtly. Uh, He uses such things as music to do so. You're driving along in the car, you're listening to music, you're none the wiser, but there's messages hidden inside, sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes our ideologies of the world around us, sometimes even how we perceive God, can be shaped and fashioned and formed by the television shows that we watch, by the company that we keep. Let me help you as we bring this to a close this morning. You might be sitting here this morning and you might be saying, well, how does this apply to me? That's all nice and fine and dandy for first century Rome if that was the case, but, but how does this apply to me? Uh, today, number one, uh, I would encourage you and urge you to do everything in your power to cast your attention upon God whenever you can. The word look and believe in the New Testament, in John chapter 3, the word look and believe are synonymous. It's about casting our focus and our attention upon God. Second thing is... Uh, There is a call for endurance of the saints and there is a call for holiness amongst the saints. And can I be clear today that you are living today, you are living in a harvest of the seeds that you have sown over a period of time in your life. And I want to be clear today, I want to be really, we make holiness to be something just for the special saints, the super anointed, uh, you know, they're called to be super holy. Holiness is a call upon the church and holiness is a harvest. Holiness is a harvest. If you want to get closer to God and and live in holiness, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you want to live in holiness, then holiness is a harvest. It's 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 seeds like attending church. It's seeds like being nice to the pastor. It's seeds like 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 spending time in prayer. These all sound very simple, but they are seeds that you sow in your life. And I want to tell you right now that. Everything comes into our life by seeds and the enemy is trying to throw seeds in your life all the time. Back to the Gospel of John. Two men I want to... You can read about these two men in in John chapter 21. Two men by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We all know about Nicodemus, don't we? Two men... Quick background on these two guys. Both of them were heads and leaders of the then Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the whole religiosity of the day. And these two men, interestingly enough, Joseph of Arimathea, we know about him. He was a rich man. He had much prestige. He had much authority. And he comes to Pilate and says, give me the body of Jesus. Now, that was bold in itself. We're going to Pilate? 
Give me the body of Jesus and I'll put him in my own tomb. Now, why would he say that? Because the Romans would have taken the body down off the cross and thrown it out in the paddock for the crows to peck apart. That's what they did with the criminals. Joseph, what does Joseph say? Joseph is saying to Pilate and to all of Rome right there and then, I don't care how you view Christ. You might see him as a criminal. You might see him as a rebel. You might see him as nothing more than a troublemaker. But to me, he deserves a proper burial. But it gets better than that. His mate was with him, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and we read about Nicodemus in chapter 3. We read about Nicodemus in chapter 11, standing up for Christ. But what we do see in chapter 21 is that Joseph of Arimathea has prepared the tomb, but Nicodemus has come to prepare the body and he brings 75 pounds of spices, which was the exact measurement you used for a royal burial. Here we have two men in a world that said Jesus is nothing more than a criminal amongst the backdrop of a religious group that said he is nothing more than a, than, than a heretic. He's nothing more than a blasphemer. He's nothing more than a troublemaker. All the religious people said troublemaker. All the people in Rome said nothing but a criminal. But two men stood up and said, one said he's a king. That's what Nicodemus is saying. And the other one stood up and said, I don't care what the world thinks of Jesus, he's the son of God. And both of them did that at an enormous cost. You know the reference to not being able to buy, sell and trade if you haven't received the mark, if you're not following the beast, if you're not conforming? In first century, both Rome and Jewish history, if you were kicked out of the Sanhedrin, those two guys would have been kicked out of the Sanhedrin almost the next day. They would have been kicked to the curb and no Jew would have associated with them. Nobody would have bought from them. Nobody would have sold to them. If their family associated with them, they were under threat of experiencing the same punishment. And these two guys stand up amidst that backdrop and they say, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to honour Christ. That's worship. What I love about the book of Revelation is it removes the grey area. I wonder today as we come to a close, I wonder whether the same applies for us as we read through chapter 13 and we read about earthly rulers and kingdoms. I would have said... I don't think it would be a stretch to say that what happened through World War II was because of a beast. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that we see this down through history. We probably see it in our day. I don't think it's a stretch to say that there's enormous pressure on each and every one of us to conform to what the world thinks we should conform to. This is what you should think of Jesus. If you want to do church and have all of your ideas, do that, but don't tell us. Isn't that interesting? They can force their ideas on us. There's enormous pressure on you each and every day to compromise with the world, to think the way of the world. What I love about this chapter is it demands that we worship God and that looks like something in our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we read these, as we look across the landscape of the globe right now, as we, as we have a look, we, we realise the reality is that in 2,000 years nothing's new under the sun. 
Well, we realise this morning, Father, what is, what is unveiled and revealed before us is the fact that there is still mounting pressure, mounting persecution, that the enemy still seeks to steal all of our worship. But you haven't changed. You are still sovereign. Nobody can take our names out of your book. Father, I pray right now for everyone in this room that we will begin to sow seeds of holiness in our lives. That we will begin placing all of our attention upon you. And I pray, Lord, that we would live lives that shine the light of Christ. I thank you for the hope that we all have in this room. That no matter what is happening outside, you are in control. You have not stepped off your throne. I pray that each one of us would be ready when you come, Jesus. On that day, Jesus, when you part the clouds. On that day, Jesus, when the trumpet sounds. I pray that every single person in this room will be ready. In your wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.